Hey everybody, today is a milestone with the Ithaca Bound podcast on March 22nd, 2021. The first episode was published. Today is June 29th, 2021. So today's episode is number 100. Thank you to everybody that continues to listen to the podcast. I know some of you also share the episodes and tell others about the podcast. So thank you. It means a lot. Enjoy episode number 100 on the ancient Greek goddess, Athena. Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Mary Lefkowitz for a conversation about Athena in Greek mythology. Dr. Lefkowitz is Professor Emerita of Classical Studies at Wellesley College, based in the U.S. She has written numerous publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. She's co-editor of the book, The Greek Plays, 16 Plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, which was published by Penguin Random House. And she's also author of the book, Euripides and the Gods, which was published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thanks. Great to be here. So to create sufficient context for our conversation today, Mary, who is Athena in Greek mythology? Oh, that's, that's really a great question because she's pretty important. She is, well, let's just go, you know, right to the beginning. She's the daughter of Zeus and Metis. Metis means intelligence. And, uh, that's that's interesting right there because Zeus is by far the most intelligent and powerful of all the gods and she her circumstances of birth are unusual because she is born from her father's head uh it's never very clear exactly how that happens but there's thunder and lightning and out she comes fully armed wearing all her armor and dressed and everything and this is this is unusual, to put it mildly, and why it is is because he's swallowed Metis, her mother, so that she he can give birth to this child, so that she <clears throat> she is not going to be stronger than Zeus, but she's going to be very strong and very unusual. And he had received a prophecy that if he he has a son by Metis intelligence, then uh, then this son will overpower him and take over so that's why he 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 followed the mother and had this remarkable daughter so it's a it's a you know it's not realistic but it's it does explain why she has she wears armor she is the only god besides zeus who can use the aegis which is that, that word means goat skin but in fact it's got terrific powers if you shake it everything thunders and it's got snakes on the end of it it's uh it it is tasseled it's tremendously powerful and she can do it and she can therefore really overcome almost any other god and of course any mortal so that gives you an idea of who she is um in, in a very general way okay and let's yeah let's certainly work work into the details then on this uh topic um, do scholars, uh, so who, who, who are the main people in classical 
Greece that wrote about the the origin story, the person or 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 or, or people. Well, Hesiod, um, who is a poet who we don't know an awful lot about him except what he tells us in a poem called uh, Works and Days, uh, which is really about farming and about almost how to live life. Uh, but in another poem, The Theogony, which means the birth of the gods, he, he, he does describe how Zeus got to be top god and uh, who all his children are and his brothers and sisters and so on. So you get a sense of who the, who the gods are completely and why Zeus is on top, whereas there were earlier gods whom he managed to overcome. So that's, that's, where, that's what Greeks read. That's not the only thing. I think the most important things, in a way, for understanding what the gods are, what they're interested in, uh, uh, is are the the two great epics by Homer, uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and there you learn a lot more about what they're capable, of, what they do. Is and it there's still more, of course? Yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, is it clear in tradition, in that origin tradition, um, is it clear one way or another if Zeus still anticipated uh, a birth, if we can use that term, given the the uh, circumstance that you des- described? Um, is it is it clear one way or another if he anticipated um, the uh, a, a birth of a of a child? Well, in that case, he certainly did. He got a prophecy uh, that uh, said this would happen, and so therefore he took that extraordinary action. I mean, there, there. Um, so yeah, the, the the tradition, the not the tradition, but the sort of what had happened before was that his grandfather was overcome by his father, and so and he overcame his father, Kronos, and so he could then expect that a son that he had by some female deity would overcome uh, him, would, would overpower him, and that then he would be relegated to Tartarus or some rather remote spot, and maybe he would have a good life, but he wouldn't be in charge. And one, one quality Zeus has is extreme intelligence, and he decided that there was another way he could manage this, and the child who would overcome him would then be part of him and and have be subservient to him because she was female. And so he, she would be a great help to him and do a lot of work for him and with him and always be very important, but she would never overcome him. And so he therefore uh, remained uh, uh, the top god. So that's, that's sort of the background of that. But yes, th- this is always possible when you have polytheism and not monotheism with one all-powerful, all-knowing God. And the Greek gods don't always know everything either. They're lucky if they can find out from another God who happens to have great foresight, but, um, and things can be done behind their backs. So it makes them seem more human, though they aren't really very human because they're immortal and ageless. The ageless part didn't really hit me until I got older. And then I realized how nice it would be to be ageless. <laughs> uh, 
So let's go to her name and etymology. What's can you talk about the name Athena? What 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 the etymology? What it what it means? Well, I don't know what <clears throat> I don't know what it means. I presume no one does, because the names of a number of gods are really uh, as a great historian. Seem to be losing my voice. Excuse me, a great historian of religion, Walter Burkert put it, the names of the gods, the Greek gods, are opaque. We don't know. People will say, oh, it sounds like this or it sounds like that. But I think in most cases, we don't know. In the case of Zeus, however, we do know because it's an Indo-European name based on the, and on a root, which is D-I or D-Y, uh, and uh, Dios in, in Sanskrit. It's the so you, you get, you, you can see that that came in with the language, but other names may come from other languages like Aphrodite or Athena. We, we just don't know. And uh, now, and maybe if we could ever find out what some of these other languages in, say, Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, were, um, and what they were related to, we might know more. But at the moment, I'd say we don't know. When Hesiod is writing about Athena, let's let's say the um, the origin tradition, do scholars believe that he's inventing her as a deity in tradition at that point, or is it believed that he is working with a deity that already exists in tradition by that point in time in Greece? Oh, I think these gods were certainly in existence um, before they wrote, and so they're working with an established tradition. And but we, if you have nothing before to go on, <laughs> these are the earliest texts you have. It's kind of hard to say where they come from. So uh, people will tell you, or people will try to tell you, but I, I don't think I know. Um, they just, this is all very clear, but when Hesiod writes his theogony, his story of the, well, the birth of the gods isn't quite right. It's a sort of family of the gods. It's all their relationships with each other. And there are many, many gods besides the ones we mentioned. And he tries to put that in some sort of order. That, that's what was known, and it's very hard to trace anything very far far back before literacy, uh, before people could write down the songs. There must have been songs long before there was writing, but we have no way to know what they were, of course. No accordance. Yeah, it takes... So, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was, yeah it takes uh, inferring, of course, in, in some instances when cert yeah. certain... Oral tradition obviously doesn't uh, won't, won't won't be in existence, and certain texts may not survive. Yes, and, and you know how much tradition was oral uh, in poetry form, and what exact form it took, we we can only guess at. Um, and I think writing was, you know, it made everything different because you could really preserve stuff and pass it along. And these texts were copied over and over again, and new things were added to them, and goodness knows what over time. But we're we're so lucky to have the the, the Greeks certainly were very lucky to have 
taken up the Phoenician alphabet. They were trading with people in Phoenicia, and they were they saw that it was a very efficient system, much better than the syllabary that they'd been using up to that time, which you really had to be quite learned to use. And so while I don't think there was ever more than 10% of the population that were literate, um, these things could, texts could be written down and the tradition uh, preserved. Now, of course, people can tinker with them and add things. And they, certainly with the Homeric text, there's a great debate always about what things have been added on later. But it's hard to know and it's hard to persuade everybody uh, most of the time. But what we have is maybe help stabilize the notion of which gods were more important. I think in the case of the Homeric texts, which were so widely circulated and so popular, people knew these things and they're, they're quoted constantly. Um, and, and right through antiquity, the most popular text in circulation was the Iliad, followed by the Odyssey. Just, you know, to go by what papyri are left. And those, of course, date from the third century BC uh, later. And, uh, so we don't really know in the same way what happened earlier because those texts aren't preserved. But people quote Homer. People knew it. This was uh, what you read. You read the Iliad in school, boys particularly, but girls later were educated as well. If anyone had money, they could, it, it was, they could learn to read and write. Most of the other people who didn't have money didn't uh, read and write or write or, or read very well. It's a luxury. What are Athena's strengths? And what, um, and part of that question too is if you were to describe what her purpose or purposes are, were, when we're talking about Greek mythology as a, as a deity, how would you describe that? So what are her strengths and what, what are her, and what's, what's, what's the purpose of her as a deity? Well, she has terrific strength in that she's very intelligent, like her father, and she's very powerful, and she can take any shape or form, and she she likes to intervene in human life. Uh, she's not one of the gods who just is sitting at Olympus going from drinking party to drinking party, but she's she is involved in things on Earth, so that's, that's, um, a lot of what she does. And she particularly uh, supports the Greeks in the Trojan War. And that's very fortunate for them because she's by far the most intelligent goddess and the most powerful. And she, and, and we know right from the beginning that the will of Zeus is accomplished, that the, the Greeks are going to win. And uh, the reason is that the Trojans did something wrong which is to keep allow Paris to keep Helen, who he had taken away from Menelaus, and uh, that that is violating Zeus's law of hospitality. So you know about Athena's power um, very clearly right from the beginning of the Iliad, and you know she's going to play an important role, and she is not uh, kind to the Trojans. And we'll now, the, the, the question is, how did she? Why is she so angry at them? And that goes back to the, the so-called quarrel uh, and uh, 
between the god uh, among the goddesses and the um uh, paris the um son of priam and hecuba the priam the king of troy uh was asked he was a very handsome man and he was asked to pick the most beautiful of three goddesses Hera, zeus's wife and aphrodite the goddess of passion love and and athena and so he had a had, and each of them offered him something and he picked aphrodite because she offered him the most beautiful woman in the world is his wife that is helen and that that got into all kinds of problems i think if if Paris had been at all sensible, he would have picked Athena as the most beautiful, whether she was or not, because she was by far the most powerful goddess. And so you just want to have plain raw power on your side, never mind beauty. So that, uh, that that's how she got to be so clearly on the Greek side and determined to destroy the Trojans. And it's why Hera pursues uh, Aeneas you know, after Troy falls and Aeneas goes on down Rome, uh, Juno, that is the Roman version of Hera, is after him right from the start because she hates all the Trojans because of this quarrel, this argument uh, over uh, over um, who is the most beautiful woman in the world. And I'll have to remember this this uh, podcast is history and mythology, so a lot of episodes are obviously on historical figures that no longer are alive. So I use the word was a lot in that context. But, but yeah. I'll have to remember when I'm speaking about a deity in Greek mythology, they don't they, they don't die. So I have to remember oh. that when I'm when I'm posing when I'm structuring the, the syntax of the questions saying yeah. it is versus was. OK, so, yeah, noted. Uh, so. Um, so who wrote about that um, tradition that you described there, Mary, about uh, Paris oh, choosing choosing between the three goddesses? And the three goddesses? Well, um, it isn't in the Iliad. It's referred to very briefly, and some people even think those lines were added later. But I think it's it doesn't matter whether it's referred to or, or not. It was just part of of tradition, I'm trying to remember <laughs> who, okay. who mentions it first. It's just something that was certainly in later poetry, uh, but it was uh, all these stories were probably known very early on. But Homer, Homer doesn't describe it. You just have to know it's there, um, and that's that's one of the problems with mythology. You really have to learn a lot of it to make the most sense out of it. And we'll probably naturally revisit the Homeric epics because she plays important roles uh, in the in the um, in the epic in the epics. Um, but I want to go back to, um, or I guess it's a it's a expanding on the question of her strengths. How would you describe what her disposition and character is? Well, I I think she is very formidable. She's always appears dressed in armor and carrying a spear and looking you know she she's somebody you don't want to mess with particularly that she has this aegis which is a goat skin but it's invulnerable goat skin unusual and it has a castle of snakes missing so you'd have to be a god to wield this thing 
um, Zeus can shake it, and the hole is like a thunderstorm hole, Earth shakes. So I think uh, she's, um, that's how you, you can imagine her. And, but at the same time, she's the goddess of crafts and handicrafts. And so very important for women because she's a terrific weaver. And what women mostly did was weave all the clothes that people wore. And if you were rich, you could get a lot of slave women to do that for you. But even Penelope, who's uh, Odysseus's wife, a really important noble person in, in, in Ithaca, spends all her days weaving. When people ask me, you know, would you like to have lived in the ancient world? I say, no way. <laughs> As a woman, you certainly, I think that might get a little tedious, even if you were good at it. But it's, that's, that, that's in a sense who, who she, she is, Athena. Is. It's a very complicated combination of two rather different things both of which require intelligence. And, and at the same time, um, she, she doesn't marry, which is what most women did. She doesn't marry and have children. Uh, she doesn't want to be subservient to any God other than her father. And uh, she isn't uh, because of, of retaining her celibacy. And that doesn't work well for mortal women mortal women, you're always the um, dependent upon some man. So if you don't have a husband, you're going to be uh, under the protection of your father until he dies, and then it's your brother or nearest male relative, particularly in Athens. You couldn't do anything without their permission if you were a female, even if you were an old woman or a middle-aged woman. So... I think she stands as something very extraordinary for most women that, to look at and to admire and wish they could be like that, to have the kind of independence that God would have. So you mentioned Athens. So let's, let's, let's go there then on her relationship to the city, Athens, because she seems to have a very kindred relationship with that city can you can you speak about what's known about how um her relationship came to be with that city i i can't tell you how that came to be it just seems always to have been uh something very important when in the odyssey she is very protective of odysseus i think we mentioned that before she's she likes him very much because he's so intelligent and thoughtful, and he's always very respectful of her. And in the Odyssey, she makes sure that he gets to return to Ithaca after a very long and complicated voyage. And on his on his way back from the absolute ends of the Mediterranean, uh, he ends up uh, swimming and arrives uh, without anything, not even any clothes, in uh, this island where the Phaeacians live. And this little girl comes up to him eventually and, and shows him the way to the main city and tells him who the king and queen are and what to do. And that's Athena in disguise. So she's always there helping him. She arranges that he gets home to begin with uh, and doesn't remain 
um, with Calypso on an island, the goddess Calypso, who wants to keep him as her boyfriend for indefinitely. So he, uh, his relationship with her is very important. I think it's she, Athena, who ensures that Odysseus wins at the at the end of the Odyssey when he tries to take back his home from all the suitors who were trying to uh, get Penelope to marry them. And he kills all, really virtually all of them. Uh, Athena is helping him kill them because there are over a hundred of them, apparently, as Homer says. And so how could he, how could he and uh, a couple of his slaves win and Telemachus, his son, against so many without the help of the goddess? So her role in the Odyssey is, is very important. Mm-hmm. So what's known or inferred about why Athena took such a liking to Odysseus in, in, in the Odyssey? Does it, does, it, does it tie into your comments earlier about her preferring the, Ache- the Achaeans over the uh, Trojans? Um, is, it, is it that? Is there, is there more to it than that, do you think? Yes, I think there is. I think that's certain. But when she, when Odysseus first arrives home in Ithaca, he doesn't know where he is. And, and uh, suddenly Athena appears and she says, we knew she always liked him because he was so intelligent. And of course, he was very respectful of her. And so she is the one who tells him essentially what to do, not to just go barging in, but to disguise himself as a beggar and to just get the lay of the land as this in, it, it, you know, inconspicuous, rather um, contemptible figure um, until he knows just who does what and then eventually with her help and the help of, of his slaves and Telemachus, he can miraculously... Uh, get rid of the suitors and then take over his own, uh, his own land and, and home. So it, I think it's his, his intelligence, which she, she also helps him in, in the, in the Iliad and she helps, um, Achilles, she keeps Achilles from killing Agamemnon. She does, she does quite a lot, uh, there. She and Hera going out in their chariots, helping, helping the the Greeks against the Trojans and giving them uh, a lot of support. So let's go back. I know we're, 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 we're going to different topics here, but I think that's, uh, it's, we're, we're, we're going with the, we're going with the flow in this conversation. I want to go back to, I want to go back to Athens because it obviously is, um, uh, an important topic when, when we're talking about Athena. Um, so, so what's, um, can you can you share more about what Greek people's relationship was to Athena in classical Athens? What's what's known about that? How how contemporaries of that time interacted um, in tradition with with uh, Athena? Well, worship of the gods is um, is very different from anything we know from the Judeo Christian tradition. Uh, Polytheism is very different because many gods have to be honored, and they're honored usually in a festival where everything stops for a few days, and uh, people come 
and bring offerings to the temples, which are not churches. They're repositories for, for beautiful weaving that women do and, uh, and other things, the treasures. Uh, and the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, for example, that people would put chariots and things if they want a race or want a war. Uh, all kinds of offerings are left to the gods. Um, so uh, that's, it's a, it's a distant relationship. It's not that you, um, the idea that that song about Jesus, and he walks with me and he talks with me, uh, that's, that's not what you really get unless you're very privileged like, like Odysseus and, and Athena will appear and you don't even know it's Athena always until she disappears. Um, it's, it's, you know, mortals and immortals, there's a huge divide between the people who uh, grow, uh, grow old quickly and die and, the, and the, the entities, the beings who are immortal and ageless uh, and powerful in a way that no human being can be. I read this uh, earlier, and I think I've read it before, but it really stood out for me um, earlier. Um, she has a, um, a one of the symbols associated to Athena is the olive tree. Is is there? Um, can you expand on on what what scholars know about about that? Well, some some deities had uh, trees associated with them. In the case of the olive tree, it's particularly important, not just for uh, as a food or as a as an oil, which is used not only as as and with food, but also in in cleansing oneself. You you would there isn't any soap, but you know a surfactant. It's a very good surfactant. You can get <laughs> dirt off by scraping it off. Uh, uh, yourself and so but it's the other thing that's really key about it is it's used to light lamps is the fuel for small clay lamps which provided uh, a source of illumination at night but mostly at night people went to bed because you you couldn't do a whole lot with fire you could read um, but they they didn't have uh, you know kerosene or anything like that petroleum things which uh, made light a lot um, brighter. Uh, and of course, electricity, which changed everything. The, um, it's either the Parthenon or the Acropolis I read was dedicated to her. Um, do scholars know why? Like in Athens, do scholars know why that was? Or is, it, is, is there any inference that can be applied to that? Well, we, you know, we... We don't know for sure anything before it could be written down or written down in, in any form that we can read. Uh, she certainly was worshipped there uh, in some form very early, but um, it, it's, and there's a thought really, I mean, the idea is that probably in the times before Homer and, and writing, I don't think you would have Homer the way we have him now without writing. I think somebody had to uh, dictate that and, and a group of scribes perhaps write it down. 
We don't know quite when that was. But before that, the Mycenaeans, the people, the Greeks-speaking people who were on that peninsula, so the first, one of the first waves of Indo-European-speaking peoples who had come, I suppose, very, very slowly from somewhere in the Caucasus. And uh, they, they come into the Greek uh, peninsula, essentially, the whole Balkan peninsula, and speaking an Indo-European language and bringing with them this notion of, a, of an important goddess. And she may be in a kind of offshoot of that. But this is really speculative because until we have writing, we don't know much of anything. And, and in certainly in the Linear B tablets, which have been deciphered, her name appears in lists of gods and offerings to gods. So she's there. But when she got there exactly, and what form she took in the early times, I, I don't think anyone knows. And with the Linear B, when is it? When do scholars believe approximately that the Linear B tablets were created? Oh gosh, uh, I, I'd, I'd say in the, you know, anywhere from sixteen hundred on, on down. Uh, I, I don't know a heck of a lot about this because it's such a an exacting su- subject, and I just, okay. being the kind of professor I was, I didn't have any time to to go into that. But they, uh, these these tablets are, you know, mainly inventories, and not literature of any kind or, or narrations, uh, and that is very useful, of course, because you do get an idea that there were lords of. The Greek word at that time was wanox, which is an ancient Greek anox, uh, in in places, and they what they ate and and uh, what kind of weapons they had, things like that. So we and we know certain sites like uh, Pylos, of course, and and Mycenae um, uh, were important centers, but exactly uh, what they did for the gods is not as, as I think is clear, but certainly those gods and the names of those gods appear very early. Yeah. Er- yes, earlier earlier than the classical Greek. Yes, earlier than the classical Greeks. And no one, everyone thought, well, maybe they only, the gods only came in around uh, the, the time of Homer, but they actually been there all along. Uh, now, all this happened, I mean, one advantage of being old is that I can remember when suddenly the, the linear B tablets were deciphered at the end of the 1950s. And this just happened as I was getting at, you know, around the time I was uh, in grad school and getting out of college. I actually went to Wellesley College as well as taught there. But I, 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 I just was so exciting to know about this and to know that people had been able to do this. And it changed the way everybody thought. You know, for, for example, there was this idea that Dionysus came in very late because that's what the mythology, his mythology is. But in fact, he'd been there all along. Just been, he'd been part of the pantheon of gods uh, as early as, you know, the second millennium, probably earlier, but who knows. In... Um... Known in current times, 
the so linear linear B you would you would you would think would be the earliest um, Athena in 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 text versus an uh, versus a text like the Iliad. I want to go. I want to ask another question after that. But would you say linear B tablet then would be the earliest that you can think of? I could, it's the earliest I can think of. There's nothing like the Iliad there, but uh, they're mostly inventories, as I said. But that's no one can decipher linear A or have, haven't quite done that. But there are thoughts. I think some of the latest research suggested it's it's closer to linear B that had been thought, but they still haven't quite broken through yet, at least to my my limited knowledge. Uh, and what that will tell us will be very interesting. What what were the other languages besides Greek, which is Indo-European, and you can uh, you can hypothesize that the people speaking it came from the Caucasus and and settled there over a period, a very long period of time. But what it seems that the people who were in Crete uh, were speaking a different language. But what was it? And how can we ever find out? Because you can only decipher a language if uh, uh, tablets or something that uh, are there by comparing it to a known language. And to and sorry. Oh, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. And to connect, connect, um, connect the uh, this conversation for someone not who's unfamiliar with the linear A's and B's. So the the A and for, and for me to clarify, the A, the A's are tied to the Minoan culture, which is the island right. of Crete, right? Right. Okay. Right. And uh, a lot of a lot can be done just by um, frequency, you know, of, of certain sounds or. In the case of both those, both linear A and linear B, probably they didn't have sounds, you know, like um, K or L or something. Uh, there, it was a ka or a K or ko, so there's there's syllables, and so that makes that makes it more complicated. It's uh, the alphabet's wonderful. The Phoenicians, of course, came up with that idea and it spread both to the Greeks and the Hebrews, and then of course from the Greeks to the Romans. But alphabet's so terrific, you've got, you know, a very finite number of letters which you can put in different combinations. Um, and it's easy to learn. Uh, uh, the syllabaries, it's like hieroglyphics or something, not related, but it's just a complicated writing system, or Chinese even. You have to really be very, very learned and think very hard uh, to work with, with uh, a system which has complicated and many characters as opposed to 24 or 26. The earliest t uh, text that's known that cites um, Athena, would that be the Homeric epics or something else? So the Iliad and, and the Odyssey? I think she's mentioned in the Linear B tablets. I think most of the gods, even Dionysus, as I think I said, who everyone thought came in late, is mentioned in, in the Linear B tablets. So, and they're great, it's very clearly Greek. And so this, I think more will be known uh, and who knows what's still left to be discovered. Yeah, you, you answered my question um, per perfectly and consistent with my, with, with my, how I asked the question. I guess what I meant by text, um, it, it, so more of an expanded, like in a, uh, like a poem type, uh, type type setting. We just... I don't know of anything. No. Okay. 
there really isn't. It's just mainly these these inventories um, on clay tablets. Uh, the, uh, the the hypothesis is that everything was oral. Literature was this is a contradiction in terms, but poems were were recited orally and passed down from bard to bard, and the bard knew the tradition, and so he he it's usually a he could recite them, but uh, that's that's and so it would be different every time. Brilliant discovery at some point, probably eighth century, in the last quarter of the eighth century BC. The alphabet appears and is used to record uh, something, and probably that's at some point after that you get somebody writing down what we know as the Iliad and the Odyssey. Not that we probably have exactly those texts as they were added on to, and, and you know this you can debate this endlessly because. There's only, there's very little information other than that, but that's the hypothesis. Is there uh, an early piece of artwork that depicts Athena that comes to mind that you want to share that, that kind of stands out for you? I don't, I don't really know of much of anything except what's on Bay's paintings and those go back to the sixth century. So uh, Mm -hmm. that's when you really get, the gods are, are, pretty identifiable after that, that uh, you can look on the vases and you know which god, Athena is always there with her aegis and her helmet and her spear, and um, that that makes, makes her quickly identifiable. You have and continue to study Greek um, theater, and you've written books on the, on, on the topic. Um, is there is there either a um, a play or maybe even a, a a different myth that we haven't covered yet in this conversation that you want to mention that uh, Athena shows up in? Well, she comes in at the end of several several dramas, uh, playing an important role in Aeschylus, certainly in uh, uh, the uh, the humanities, and, and she she appears. And uh, and decides in favor of Orestes, so that he is acquitted of murdering his mother, and then she she declares what will happen with Athens that the the furies that have been pursuing him will become the kindly ones and live in Athens to protect them, and so she she creates uh, a kind of civilized future, which is which is very much she did as the goddess of that city and, and playing an important role in human life in, in handicrafts as well as uh, defense. So that's, that's one example, I think, of how the myths uh, really reflect actual religious practice and, and uh, I think very clear in her case, but there are certainly other cities that that had a particular devotion to other gods. Well, Delphi would be an excellent example where Apollo was, and his oracle uh, were the center of what people came came there and to learn about the future because he is a god who knows these things and finds rather complicated ways to tell people. But yeah, I think that's... 
the show will be covering uh, ancient Delphi soon, so that's uh, timely, Mary. That that oh, mentioned. <laughs> well, Delphi is so critical because so many decisions were made, rightly or wrongly, on the basis of how they understood the oracle. Is there anything in this conversation, and and you know this, um, and listeners know this, we always keep them to within uh, sixty minutes. Um, is there anything in this conversation that you feel about Athena we haven't touched on that you want to make sure you mention in this conversation today? Well, certainly uh, her intelligence is is a key part of what she is. And I often think that uh, it, the model, she's a model for, for women in the sense that the marriage and the commitments of marriage and of having children does take away, to some extent, your ability to think, to shape your life as you would like it to be. Um, uh, it's more harder for women than for men. I've certainly seen that in my own life. But I think she is a, an unattainable model for, for many of us. But that's that's one thing that she is um and just the idea that a, a female entity can have that extreme intelligence and power is a rather exciting thing i think she's a very important deity in greek mythology and uh mary it has been a true pleasure to uh chat with you today thank you for coming on the show oh thank you it's a pleasure to talk to you so again, everybody, Dr. Lefkowitz's um, couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode as examples. She is co-editor of the Greek plays, 16 plays by Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And she's author of Euripides and the Gods. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Mary and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Oh, thank you. Bye. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.